Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Our brain is a wonderful organ and helps us do amazing things, but it needs to be protected. Now, if you take a blow to the head, perhaps playing a sport, well, then how do you assess when you're safe to return to the field? And that's where the study of the science of concussions becomes really, really important. We need better frameworks to understand and analyse them, as well as new ways to test rely less on self-reporting from athletes. This week, we're going to dive into the world of neurology and concussion science. The brain is one of the most remarkable parts of our bodies, and that of all other creatures as well. The size and complexity of our brain enables us to do amazing things. Travel across the world, solve great problems, interact with other creatures and other humans, and hold in our heads all these complicated, intangible ideas. But inside our heads also being held is the actual physical grey matter of our brain, or pink rather. And the problem is, it's basically rattling around or floating there inside your skull. And if something happens to you, let's say a sudden blow to the head, maybe if you're playing a contact sport or even a non-contact sport as a result of an accident, or maybe you are in a car and all of a sudden your head violently is jerked forward as a result of a car accident and whiplash, both things can cause your brain to move around inside your skull. And that movement of your brain inside your skull colliding with the skull can lead to what we call a concussion. It's a mild brain injury, or often called in the medical parlance, a mild traumatic brain injury, MTB. And this type of head trauma is particularly defined by a couple of things. What's going on inside your brain at this point is you can get bruised, you can get damaged, you can have tearing or rips inside nerve fibres. And all of this goes on to disrupt the way that our brain normally works. Now, especially if some parts of the brains have undergone weird forces being squished up against each other, and these can stretch or tear nerve tissue, it can also alter the chemical composition of the brain because some cells that produce those chemicals are damaged as part of this collision. And even in extreme cases, you can lose consciousness. So concussion is no joke. But the problem is, a lot of the time, particularly if you play sports, you can get a concussion and not necessarily realise it immediately. Because around only 10% of concussions actually result in you losing consciousness. A lot of the time, you feel a bit woozy because you've just fallen down or hit your head, but you don't necessarily associate it immediately with concussion. But the symptoms of, symptoms of concussions, especially the secondary injuries that result from it, can last for a couple of weeks. And unfortunately, given the nature of the injury, it's not like there's a specific treatment or cure that you can put in place. Generally... If you suspect that you have a concussion, it's probably pretty good to be assessed by a doctor. Um, And that's especially if you have any short periods of unconsciousness, definitely go to a doctor or hospital at that point. General confusion, dizziness, nausea, amnesia, and and persistent but low-grade headaches. All of these things can be symptoms of a concussion, particularly if you tie it back towards being a reasonable blow to the head, even though you may not realize it right away. Now... To prevent it from coming again, there's a lot of different things that you can do. Typically rest and putting you on a plan to make sure your brain isn't too overused, in, if especially in the cases of a more serious brain injury. But if you play a sport and you keep playing on that concussion, well, there's things that can go wrong. And if you're in a sport like, say, AFL or NFL, American football, um, you might find yourself 
on the receiving end of a lot of large blows to the head. And that can cause a lot of concussions. And that's when your brain starts to have more serious problems. Not just the mild or minor traumatic brain injuries, but a lot of them. And that's where scientists are still trying to wrap their head around exactly what's going on inside our brains in that circumstance. So this week we're going to look at a few stories about concussion science. What the latest recommendations are on assessing, monitoring and treating concussions from the CDC, but also look at some new interesting ways of assessing the health of the brain and what we can do about that, and some sports or others that are more frequently found associated with concussions. So the United States Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, along with the American College of Emergency Physicians, ASEP, have put together a series of recommendations for medical clinicians to help people in the medical profession better diagnose and treat specifically people with mild traumatic brain injuries, what we call concussions, or MTBI. And in these cases, in particular when dealing with children, it's really, really important for medical professionals to understand how to diagnose and also develop treatment plans that correctly assess risk, but also can help the patients have better outcomes. Now, the most recent findings and outlining of the recommendations from the CDC were published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine editorial, and they include a lot of things, everything from spending the diagnosis to the prognosis and management and treatment in a variety of different clinical settings, all the way from your local general practitioner and doctor, all the way up to the emergency room and what can be done there. Now, in the United States between 2005 and 2009, there were around 3 million emergency department visits for pediatric mild traumatic brain injury. That's a lot if you think about it. Just the United States, just for children with forms of concussions or mild traumatic brain injuries. And that's a lot of volume and a lot of concussions or traumatic brain injuries to manage and treat. Now, if you've taken a blow to the head, you might think you want to go get your head scanned or checked out. And that, in some cases, may be the correct course of action. But this is where clinicians used to need to exercise their judgment and use the correct tools to make sure, really, if that's the best thing for you. Because not only is that particularly expensive if you're in a country that doesn't provide universal healthcare, but even if you aren't, it's still expensive and time-consuming and hogs up the equipment for people with actual serious injuries that need a critical attention, especially when it comes to emergency department usage of such equipment. So the CDC has come up with a list of recommendations and tests that clinicians can walk through. This includes looking at the risk factors involved and trying to calculate a risk score for the patient and help guide the clinician through the process of assessing the child. Do they have a risk or a history of concussions? Have there been symptoms and what kind of symptoms and how many of them and all these things build into it and they lose to assess if there's any particular risk factors family history of certain diseases and based on all of this then they decide on the course of outcome and one of the big factors is this is used then before you do things like ct imaging because that means that you are delaying the ct imaging and scale radiographs unless you need them because if there's acute or worsening symptoms then sure that's required but if they're not the best actual thing you can do is go home and rest. There's no need for the complicated, and for children particularly, trying to get them to sit still in a large scanning machine, often distressing situation. Now on top of that, there's a lot of other things that you need to consider. When you're prescribing some medication for them, it's important now they've recognised to use non-opioid analgesics, um, along with counselling about the risks of overuse, mostly to try and avoid any problems with opioid addiction developing. 
And it's really important, they've noted, for children and family to be educated about warning signs for progression or worsening of the condition. And ways for them to help the patient then monitor their sleeping habits to help understand how they're going and tracking their symptoms as they take the weeks to progress into normal brain behavior. Because that's the thing with concussions. A lot of the time, it's just a waiting game, and you need to know what to look for to make sure it's not getting worse. And so that's what this framework's about, providing clinicians with the tools they need to make the assessments. And a lot of this was led, not only by the CDC, but the American College of Emergency Physicians. And the lead researcher and author of this paper was Angela Lumber-Brown, who's an MD, a pediatric emergency physician, was also the lead author of the paper, and the clinical assistant professor of emergency medicine at Stanford University. And she and her team put this all together to help give clinicians more tools at their disposal to help small children and families in the emergency departments get a handle on concussions. If you've ever watched a game of hockey, you'll know that the players are all padded up and they have on big helmets, all the way from the junior divisions right up to the most professional leagues vying for the Stanley Cup or competing at the Olympic Games. But a recent study performed by the University of British Columbia have been analysing the brains of concussed hockey players and trying to understand what's going on in them, not just immediately after the concussion, but weeks after, when the players themselves say they feel fine. And this is really one of the big problems, specifically for professional athletes all the way down to amateur athletes, knowing when you're actually still okay. And that's what these researchers at the University of British Columbia have been investigating. And they were looking specifically at a protective layer of fatty tissue surrounding brain cell fibers and observing how they loosened and changed after the injury and how they slowly recovered. Now, this loosening of that insulation, which is called myelin, slows the transmission of electrical signals between neurons and that is a pretty big deal because it means that your brain is still functioning in an impaired state but the problem is a lot of the current metrics for testing you could pass the test whilst still having these loosened brain cell fibers and that is pretty worrying how do you then safely assess if someone is concussion free so what researchers like Alex Rauscher, an Associate Professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Canada Research Chair in Developmental Neuroengineering at the University of British Columbia, have been investigating. And all this work was recently published in the journal Frontiers in Neurology. Now this team of researchers at UBC took 45 UBC hockey players and gave them an MRI before the season began. Then, in during the season, if they were concussed, they were rescanned three days afterwards two weeks afterwards, and two months afterwards. Now, 11 athletes during the season received a concussion. So from the pool of 45, 11 of them, so around just under a quarter, actually received a concussion. And most of them also underwent some additional MRI scans. Now, the problem is, though, conventional MRI imaging, the one we normally typically use in a hospital to assess brain injury, doesn't actually reveal myelin loosening. That's where... Professor Rauscher 
and postdoctoral research fellow Alex Weber used an advanced digital analysis of the scan data. They developed their own pixel-based statistical analysis tool that could find if there was any visual changes in a way that was not normally perceivable in an MRI. And they were looking to try and to see if these myelinin was loosening the fibers around the brain. And they were targeting in on this for a particular reason. Professor Rauscher in 2016 had found that changes to myelinin in the corpus callosum, a part of the brain that helps the brain's two hemispheres communicate, was susceptible to damage from impacts like collisions, causing concussions. But they didn't know what happened to the myelin. Was it diminished in the same way it happens during multiple cirrhosis, or was it altered in some other way? And that was the good news. It was just a temporary loosening, not permanent damage. But it was damaged nonetheless. And the more strange part is that the myelin, the fibers around the brain parts, were loosening even two weeks after the actual concussion incident. And that's problematic because at most of those times, those players would have passed the regular coordination test and test of cognitive ability, balance, and mood that we normally use in professional settings to assess concussions. So these players would have felt fine and they would have passed a lot of the concussion protocol tests for sports, but their myelin was still loosening around their brains, exposing them to further damage and risk. What was good news is that after about two months, everything had settled back to normal. The myelin recovered and stopped being so loose and floppy and returned back to its normal tight state, protecting the brain cells and fibers. Now, that shows that there is damaging things happening to the brain long after the concussion event, but we need to get a better understanding of how we can recover and how we can track and scan for those recoveries, which might mean in sports like hockey and other professional settings where athletes are exposed frequently to concussions, which is different to a child exposed to a one-off concussion event. Hockey players during a season being exposed to multiple and then expected to play in, with pressures to play in a team and very, very quickly afterwards. It shows that we need to have a more thorough testing mechanism, not just for hockey, but for other sports like NFL, rugby, you name it. This is some great work being done out of the University of British Columbia. professional athlete you're under enormous pressure once you have a concussion injury and not just because your brain is inflamed and sloshed around inside your head now your teammates your coach your league your team management and yourself put yourself under a lot of pressure to return to the field sometimes before it's too soon whether it's making the team for a big game or even just trying to contribute and earn your livelihood athletes are under enormous pressure to return earlier and earlier after a concussion but the best treatment, and the only treatment we really have for a concussion, is rest and waiting it out. And especially challenging because a lot of the diagnostic metrics we use to assess a patient's concussion involves self-reporting of symptoms. So all of these things mean that a lot of the time, players will just simply say, yeah, they're ready to go back to the field. And without good indicators, like we spoke about earlier, um, for assessing, it makes it very difficult to make an objective judgment on whether that person is safe to return to the field. And if you think about it, we're searching for a biomarker, something we can point to and say, yes, this means that they are safe now to return to the field. And that's what researchers from Gothenburg University, along with the Schalgrensker Academy in Sweden, have been looking at. In a paper recently published 
in in the journal Neurology, outlines the results of a long-term study over three seasons, 2012 to 2015, a whole bunch of hockey players from Sweden. Now, over these three seasons, in hockey clubs from all the way up in Lule in the north of Sweden to Rögel in the south, lent their players to the study. And there was 288 of them. Now, during that three-year period, out of that 288 players, 105 of them, so under half, but not but still a significant portion, suffered a concussion during the seasons in question. And from those, 87 of those players, they managed to get blood samples that were taken one hour, 12 hours, 36 hours, and 144 hours, six days, after the concussion. And they took a fifth sample, a last sample, when the person was determined fit to return to unrestricted competition. Now, the whole purpose of this study was to try and identify biomarkers, something you could look for in the blood, to see if it related to the person's brain health after the concussion injury. And what they were looking for was a concentration of, of known biomarkers for concussion inside the blood and trying to tie it back to the actual results in the field. And one of the things that they're looking for is a protein neurofilament light called NFL, not the footballer, a protein. And the reason why they like looking for that biomarker is it has the clearest connection to the severity of the concussion. And by doing a longitudinal study, that is a study that watches people over a long period of time, you actually get to see if there's a strong correlation. And what they found is that this NFL protein actually has a really, really strong correlation to the severity of the type of concussion received. And they, what happens when the brain is damaged, it releases this protein into the bloodstream, and then it takes time for that to be cleared. Now, what they observed was that there was a lot of NFL released within an hour after the concussion. And then it increased over time in the players who had prolonged symptoms. So those who had more damaging concussions, not just a light one, had continuing symptoms. They were still releasing and increasing this amount of protein in their blood well after the initial event. They also studied other biomarkers like tau, S100b, and neuron-specific enclaves, NSE. Now, these no, normally decreased quickly, and so therefore you don't really get a good track on the 7 to 10 day period after a concussion. So they can't be really used to tie back to it, but at least the NFL, the neurofilament light protein, could be. And that's important because by measuring the amount of NFL concentrations in players, you can actually get an assessment, an objective assessment using a biomarker about the long-term recovery of this patient and rely less on self-reporting methods. So it's easy to diagnose if there is a concussion. We have a lot of ways to check for that. But by using a biomarker like NFL protein, we can actually now make an assessment, clear assessment of when it is safe for someone to return back to the field and rely less and reduce the pressure on players from themselves as well as their coaches and their teams and their teammates to help get a correct assessment on when people are safe to go back to the field and avoid persistent con concussion on concussion, which is how we end up with serious traumatic brain injury. So there's some great research out of the University of Gothenburg and the Sogranska Academy in Sweden. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From a new framework from the CDC to help diagnose concussions and a blood test to help actually track if you're safe to return to the field, we also found out about some fibres in the brain that can be loosened and contracted over a longer period of time. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.